From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm sitting in for Tony today, and it is my pleasure to be with you as we get closer and closer to celebrating the birth of Jesus. We are going on the program today to look back a little bit at the year that has been and appreciate the things that we have done together to impact the culture and Washington, D.C. But we will also look forward a bit. And as you look forward, I would like to make sure you are aware of our Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. Now, this plan encourages people to read through the Bible. Everyone at FRC is on this Bible Reading Plan, and you can join us. We here at FRC believe that all we do, whether it be our public policy work, our careers, our family, or entertainment, starts with the firm foundation of Scripture. So I encourage you to join up now and join us in January for our 2022 to 2023 Stand on the Word two-year Bible reading plan. For details, you can visit frc.org slash Bible. Again, that's frc.org slash Bible. In addition, year-end, any contribution you make to FRC through TonyPerkins.com will be doubled between now and December 31st. Everything that we do is possible because of you. We greatly appreciate your support. Another thing that is possible to because of you is all the work that we do in Washington, D.C. The Family Research Council and this program is an extension of you. Since 1983, we have given those who value faith, family, and freedom a voice in the nation's capital. And today we're going to look back at 2021 and remember what we all accomplished together. We'll talk to Leela Gilbert, and she's FRC's Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom. We'll talk to her about we, how we have helped persecuted Christians all over the world. We'll talk to Brent Kylan, FRC's Vice President for FRC Action, about the biggest elections from 2021 and the ways that we all made a difference there. Later in the program, we'll talk to Kena Gonzalez, who's FRC's Senior Director of Government Affairs, about the ways that our presence in Washington, D.C. is making an impact on federal legislation, as well as an impact at the states as well. But first, we want to celebrate the success God has given us on life issues. From life-saving state legislation to potentially game-changing Supreme Court cases, 2021 may end up being one of the most significant years for life ever. Joining me now to look back at the pro-life successes this year is FRC's Mary Zock, and she's our director of the Center for Human Dignity. Mary, good to see you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me. Well, we are glad to talk to you and thankful for all that you have helped accomplish this year. When you think about 2021 and the life issues, everything that you worked on, what comes to mind first? Well, you know, Joseph, I saw recently uh, a report that 2021 was the worst year ever for the, for the abortion industry. And, and that means it's a great year for the unborn, a great year for FRC. The big thing that comes to the top of my mind with this is the state level legislation. You know, I think that Dobbs is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds when it comes to what's going on. Um, and, and what people need to recognize is that Dobbs is the product of state level legislation that has been 
enacted through the efforts of, of state legislators around the country who have been voted into office by strong pro-lifers throughout the states. That's exactly right. And, and Mary, I'm curious, do you recall from that particular article what the abortion industry said made this the worst year ever for abortion? I do. In fact, they, they cited that 106 pro, well, they called them anti-abortion restrictions, but 106 pro- pieces of pro-life legislation were enacted in 2021 alone. And, and that is notable because it's greater than any other amount in, in history. The, the next largest number enacted in a year was 89. Um, so this is really showing that not only are, are people beginning to vote legislators into office who are pro-life, but they're beginning to hold them accountable for being pro-life while they're in office. Mary, that is a it's a tremendously encouraging number, the amount of legislation that has been passed at the state level. What do you attribute that growth to? Well, I think that people have started to recognize the need um, more than ever to protect the unborn. I think that the the development of the ultrasound, the the development of the fetal Doppler, you know, these advances in science that we have seen that have taken place since 1973 have made people recognize the dignity of the human person that, that we've always known was there, right? We recognize that every person, every unborn child is a person made in the image and likeness of God and, and therefore is worthy of dignity and respect. But I think Planned Parenthood and, and the abortion industry has inadvertently helped the pro-life movement because their message has been exposed. You know, we've seen the, the instances where they've exploited women. We've seen Planned Parenthood finally admit that Margaret Sanger was a racist and a eugenicist. Um, we've, we've seen the, the pro-life, the pro-abortion movement rather, desire to exploit women at all costs with uh, President Biden recently removing the REMS from chemical abortion, which we, we know will just make things more dangerous for women. We've seen how little the abortion industry cares about women. And at the same time, we've seen the humanity of the unborn child. And I want to get into that and how that's impacting kind of the way the public is perceiving this issue. But before I do, I want to talk in a bit more detail about these 100 plus piece, pieces of legislation at the state level. When you think about those, what are the what are the most significant ones, the most impactful ones? Well, of course, you know, the ones that are are um, sort of the gold standard are those states, Alabama and, and Arkansas, who have recently, not, not both in 2021, um, but we got one in 2021, completely banned abortion in their states. We have, in the U.S., we have several states, over, over 18 states, who have enacted legislation called trigger bans that if Roe is overturned, um, those states would completely outlaw abortion. And, and in fact, there's, there's 22 total and, and uh, you know, several of them have happened more recently. We've seen states work to outlaw discriminatory abortions called the, the PRENDA bans, the Prenatal Non-Discrimination Act bans. Um, and this legislation says you can't abort a child based on the child's race, sex, or um, uh, on a prenatal diagnosis of disability. FRC had a a champion for for Prenda bans 
Chloe Condrich. Uh, she joined us at Pray Vote Stand this year and, and talked about the need to defend unborn children in the womb, both unborn children with Down syndrome, as Chloe has, and unborn children who, who don't have any, any genetic abnormality. Um, and so, you know, we have really seen the pro-life movement working on that, on those laws. And I want to, about those Prenda bans, I actually think those are significant bill, bills in terms of the public's understanding of abortion. Because what they specifically do is, is shave off what, what seems like a small portion of abortions. Abortions done for disability, for race, for gender, but they do happen. And I think it's important to highlight the fact that the vast majority of abortions are not these these cases of rape and incest that the abortion industry would like to have everyone believe that abortion is around for. It's just people in many cases just saying we don't like these kinds of people. And and I think that really strikes within each one of us a sense of that's not right. Do you think that those conversations are moving the needle in terms of the public's consciousness about this issue? I certainly think they are. You know, anyone who knows someone with Down syndrome or with any sort of intellectual or physical disability uh, knows the joy and love that those people bring. My family is blessed. We have, I have an older sister named Marita um, who has both physical and intellectual disabilities. Um, and and Christmas time is infinitely more special in my family because Marita's there because she brings so much love and joy and just a, a true innocence with her everywhere she goes. Uh, and, and I think that when people know someone like Marita and then you tell them, well, did you know in the United States, 67% of babies who were prenatally diagnosed with some, uh, with a condition like Marita's, a condition of, of Down syndrome are aborted that doesn't sit well with people because we know that this world needs a lot more love. And, and we know that people who have Down syndrome and are, are just beautiful examples for all of us of how to love others. Now, Mary, one of the impacts of all of this state legislation is all of the litigation surrounding it. Because, of course, the abortion industry does not take this sitting down. And one of those laws is now at the Supreme Court. In the Dobbs case, oral arguments have been heard. We are hoping and praying that in June, it's going to actually result in the overturn of Roe. What's the connection there between the legislation and what the Supreme Court's doing? Well, you know, as you said, Joseph, the state legislation is so important. Those prenatal non-discrimination acts that I mentioned, in some states, they're able to go into effect. In other areas, they haven't been able to go into effect. And it's really it's really wild to watch organizations like Planned Parenthood speak out and say, no, you should be allowed to abort a child because they have Down syndrome or because it's a baby girl or because that child is black. It really twists the pro-abortion industry into knots. What we saw in the Dobbs case is Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, which was a piece of bipartisan supported legislation that, that came out of Mississippi um, that banned abortion after 15 weeks. It was not able to go into effect, of course, because of Roe, and uh, the, the appeal was made to the Supreme Court. There is legislation around the country that could have been the case that the Supreme Court took up. And so I do really want to commend all of our state legislators who have enacted legislation that challenges Roe. Because 
It could have been any piece of legislation. It happened to be Mississippi's Gestational Age Act. And we're so grateful yeah. to Attorney General Lynn Finch for our, for for appealing to the Supreme Court yeah. and, to Dep and to Scott Stewart, who argued that case in front of the Supreme Court on December 1st. And we're hoping it will overturn Ralph. And I hope people understand that it is the activists laboring at the local level, partnering with their state legislators, laboring long into the night, persuading people to pass these pieces of state legislation that ultimately gets these things to the Supreme Court that will ultimately, uh, God willing, get Roe versus Wade overturned. It is a process. It is a team. Each one of us is part of that. Now, Mary, of course, the pro-life cause is not just about changing laws either at the Supreme Court or at the, or at the legislature, but tell us, how do we change hearts and minds? How's that going in America? Well, I think, I think we have seen, we haven't seen the needle move significantly on how Americans feel about abortion. We have seen that more and more Americans, uh, when they know what Roe does, their views are not in line with that. We've seen it's about 80% of Americans disagree with the ruling in Roe that allows abortion through 40 weeks. Uh, but most Americans right now want abortion to be legal with some restrictions. And, and this is where we at the pro-life movement really need to continue championing the life of the unborn. You know, that, yep. that child is the same from day one as Mary? he is on day one. I outside. do have to jump in here because we are out of time. Thank you for your labor all year. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Joseph. Stay with us. An update from Leela Gilbert on international religious freedom when we come back. We often hear that religious liberty is something we must protect, but what is it? Simply put, it is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. So, why should people care about protecting religious liberty, both domestically and internationally? At Family Research Council, we believe that fighting for religious liberty is essential because it is an inherent human right that all governments have a responsibility to protect. Unfortunately, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a terrible reality around the world, yet so often the media turns a blind eye while attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. As Christians, we look to Scripture as our authority, and in it we have a clear calling from God to pray and care for the persecuted. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. Learn more about what you can do to help the persecuted by accessing Family Research Council's latest resources on religious liberty at frc.org slash religious liberty. What do abortion, pornography, and human trafficking have in common? They all violate human dignity and worth, treating people as objects to be bought, sold, and discarded. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every person is made in the image of God and has inherent dignity and worth. FRC's Center for Human Dignity exists to give a voice to the voiceless by providing helpful resources that address abortion, human trafficking, pornography, and more. To learn more, visit frc.org life. In a culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. But men need a model of leadership they can follow. Stand Courageous Men's Ministry seeks to help men develop a strong biblical character, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Find an event near you 
at StandCourageous.com. Here at FRC, we stand. We love to stand. We can't stop standing. We love standing so much, we actually removed all the chairs, couches, and stools from our premises. But that wasn't enough for us. We got USA-made 15-ounce stand mugs. So that if we ever forget what to do, we're reminded by the USA-made ceramic always close at hand. Whether drinking a morning brew, sipping afternoon tea, or chowing down on dinner, everything served in a stand mug just pairs oh so well. Does a conscience that stands for faith, family, and freedom ever truly go thirsty? Get your stand mug at TonyPerkins.com. And, as always, keep standing. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Over the past year or two, our country has faced unusual challenges. Continuing pandemic concerns, the worrisome shifting of political winds, and other trials such as floods, fires, and most recently, horrifying tornadoes. Many fellow believers also struggle with financial worries and other concerns. Still, during this special season, our families and church congregations joyfully gather to sing hymns and carols, light candles, listen to children's choirs, and worship the Christ child who came and lived among us and who continues to bless us with his presence. Unfortunately, however, beyond our borders, the Christmas story is not so welcome as it is here. In much of the world, the gathering of Christians for any reason is often far from safe. So writes my colleague, Leela Gilbert, in a new FRC blog. She is FRC's Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom. Leela, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you very much, Joseph. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you. You write in that blog that I just read an excerpt from uh, a story about a woman named Mary Mohammadi, an Iranian convert to Islam from Christianity who was jailed and physically abused for her faith. Her story represents the story of many. Tell us a little bit about what you wrote. I wrote about Mary because I've been fortunate in being able to be in touch with her. I've never met her physically because, of course, she hasn't been able to leave Iran and she's been jailed at least twice and badly treated. Uh, But I'm able to correspond with her privately. And so I could get her comments about Christmas just speaking to her. And as she said, and as I wrote in the article, it's uh, it's not much of a celebration in Iran because although everyone celebrates the birth of Jesus uh, in their hearts and whenever they can gather, there are continuous assaults on church uh, house churches and on individuals who are known to be Christians or Christian leaders. So it's a very dangerous time in Iran and not a time of, of great uh, fun and, and joy and, and fellowship like we have here. How many Christians around the world are in a situation like that where they cannot openly celebrate Christmas? Well, there are hundreds of thousands, if not into the millions. Um, the number the number I have here on one article um, it's just a, something like 340 million Christians are in persecu- 
in persecuted lands. That doesn't mean every single person can't celebrate Christmas. Sure. But compared to us and the freedoms we have and continue to have, um, most of the world is under tremendous pressure at this time of year. Uh, Christian people wanting to gather, celebrating, but you know, we've had some terrible bombings and so forth over the years, as well as just these smaller church assaults. Yeah. And, uh, of course, as I wrote also, and you probably saw about Nigeria, which is um, just a continuing bloodbath. Right. And, and I do want to get into that, but I hope the, the awareness of how many Christians live in places where they cannot openly celebrate, first, makes us grateful, second, inspires in us a vigilance to preserve what we have, recognizing how unique and special it is, but also to to generate sympathy and empathy and concern for those around the world who don't celebrate and don't enjoy what we still enjoy in America. In your view, you mentioned Nigeria. What are the countries that are particularly problematic when it comes to religious freedom? Well, the ones that I wrote about, I wrote about... Um, Iran. I wrote about Nigeria and Afghanistan, to our surprise, had a much larger Christian community than anyone knew until all of the uproar happened after Biden pulled America out of there. Uh, we found there were 10 to 12,000 underground Christians, entirely underground Christians. They're all converts from Islam. But beyond that, China is cracking down tremendously on Christians. North Korea has been the worst uh, persecutor in the world for 20 years or more. It's just a nightmare. Unbelievable there. Um, in Myanmar, the Christians are being attacked during this civil war that's been going on there for quite some time. Um, you can just about look anywhere in the world, Pakistan, um, even, even in places you wouldn't expect, like even in Finland now, there is control over what people can say. It's speech issues, and and speaking what the Bible says about certain things can get you jailed, and it has happened to one woman. So, you know, it's we have a tremendously blessed Christian life in the United States, and it's easy to find problems, but we need to be grateful, and we do have a responsibility to pray for our brothers and sisters abroad. It's, it's a biblical injunction for us to do that. Leela, do you think the international community— is doing enough to acknowledge and address the threats to international religious freedom around the world? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's, it's uh, pathetic. And there are groups, of course, there are Christian groups and, and others that are human rights oriented that are aware of this and trying to do something. But our own country has backed off tremendously on this issue just during this new administration. We we, uh, for example, lost the country of particular concern designation for Nigeria uh, just a few weeks ago because um, this administration yeah. never explained why. But that took away the option of certain kinds of sanctions and other other tactics that might might have alerted the Nigerian government that they had a problem with us. But um, most of the world is doing nothing. The UN does very little. They're very concerned about Islamophobia but they're not at all concerned about Christian persecution. Leela, to that point, and we just have about a minute left, presidential ad administrations disagree about a lot of things, but generally 
Democrats and Republicans would agree that people should not be imprisoned or beaten because of their faith. But how big of an impact does a change in a presidential administration make when it comes to the attention the U.S. government gives to this issue? Well, it changes the amount of attention the government gives for sure. We still have allies in Congress that care about these things. But it also gives the license to some of these countries because they know that nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to be said. And so it just leaves an open door for terrible things to happen to our brothers and sisters around the world. And we really need to pray and we need to write to our uh, congressmen and, and let them know what we think because we do run the country, even though uh, it doesn't look that way sometimes. We do need to remember that we are very much involved in this process. And more than anything, or as much as anything on this issue, we need to pray. And Lila, thank you for your time today and reminding us of the importance of all that we have and the importance of keeping our brothers and sisters around the world in prayer. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joseph. Now, coming up, more of our look back at this year for FRC. FRC Action's Brett Kylan joins us to talk about elections and what's gone well and what might go now well next year as well. Stay with us. Stay informed with what's going on in our nation's capital, make a difference in your community, and keep your friends and family up to date with Family Research Council's Stand Firm mobile app. This tool serves to bring Christians across America together in advancing faith, family, and freedom. With the Stand Firm app, you will have all our content available at your fingertips and will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download FRC's Stand Firm app or by going to frc.org slash app. In the season our nation is in, it is necessary for Christians to pray, to stand for truth, and to, above all things, seek after the Lord. Every Wednesday, FRC and FRC Action President Tony Perkins hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus our attention on the Lord first and in every aspect of our lives. The purpose of this is to help equip you to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christians for this weekly half-hour program to help you see through the fog that's being created by the biased lenses of the mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray Vote Stand weekly broadcast, visit prayvotestand.org. That's prayvotestand.org. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm sitting in for Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch. Well, it's been said many times that elections have consequences, and sometimes elections have surprises as well. This year, some of the biggest surprises came out of Virginia, where a state many thought had turned permanently blue, saw voters elect a Republican governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. 
How did that happen? Is it a sign of things to come in 2022? Here to highlight the work and impact of FRC Action, the legislative affiliate of FRC is Brett Kylan. He's the vice president of FRC Action. Brett, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Joseph. Good to be with you today. It's good to see you. When you think about elections from 2021, what stands out to you most? You know, you mentioned uh, Virginia, Joseph, and I I think that is the one that stands out to me at the top. There are several. But when you look at what happened there, a state that Joe Biden won by 10 points just a year ago to have the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general and the state house of delegates all flip from Democrat to Republican control. Uh, that's just huge, just huge. So, so that's definitely the kind of the top for me. The other thing uh, among a number of races across the country that, that I was encouraged by uh, and that stuck out was the school board results. We saw a number of those, not in just Virginia, but Texas, uh, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, all over the country and saw um, just an unprecedented uh, unprecedented level of involvement by parents and concerned citizens. And then we also saw uh, some tremendous uh, results at the at the school board level as well in 2021. Yeah, and I think it's a, worth pointing out at that point that the importance of getting those people elected is not because we went from Democrats to Republicans, but because we went from people who are really anti the values that we share to people who are really friendly and share the values that we share. Because really we're in this for the ideas, for the mm-hmm. truth, for the impact on the culture, not necessarily the partisan impact. And that's just kind of one of the variables in this larger uh, conversation about ideas that we have in public policy. Now, you're the head of FRC Action. You manage electoral activities. How does FRC Action try to impact who is elected in these state and local elections? What do you do? So we do a number of things, Joseph, and and like you said, it really is about the issues. So we're, we're looking at, you know, making sure the voters are aware on the topic of education, which was so big, um, the right to life, religious liberty, making sure that the voters are aware of where the candidates stand on those key issues. And also, if we have a candidate who's going to uh, stand up for those, trying to help them get elected. So um, do that a number of different ways. We try to put out different uh, voter resources and materials, voter guides, uh, videos, uh, targeted ads, um, calls, things like that. Uh, in Virginia, we were able to do uh, targeted outreach to uh, 236,000 key voters in Virginia. So that was uh, get out the vote, phone calls, robocalls, again, voter guides, things like that. And then um, we, we uh, through FRC Action, also have a pack and at times will endorse candidates as well and try to support them that way and help them get uh, get elected in that that fashion as well. Brent, we've all seen campaigns get dirty. They're often personal. They're often negative. How do you engage in campaigns without behaving unethically, dishonestly or otherwise compromising the principles that we share? It's such a good question. And honestly, Joseph, I think this is a very important one that you ask because I think there's a lot of good people that stay out of the process because they don't think there's a a way to get involved without doing the mudslinging. And um, I think there's a number of things. I absolutely would say good people can get involved. You can run an effective campaign without compromising your principles and and getting into the the mudslinging and and, and things like that. And I think um, one of the places you start 
start is keep it focused on the issues. Uh, make sure you are talking about the issues. Um, don't go after somebody uh, based off of, uh, you know, uh, personality or things like that. Um, I think that's really important. Uh, I think it's also very important when you are evaluating whether or not you run Know where your principles are because I can tell you they will get challenged. No matter where you draw those lines, they will get challenged from even people that 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 uh, maybe are trying to help you. And I think you have to know what it is that uh, I guess where that line in the sand is for you before you jump in. And then when you're when you're running for office, just just don't cross it and stay committed to uh, to those principles. And Brent, very quickly, connect the dots for us. We get involved in the elections, the elections happen, but what are the policy impacts you have seen or expect to see because of your work in these elections? You know, I, I think there's quite a few of them. Um, you know, if you look at the uh, at the uh, Virginia races, I think we are going to see a, a, a shift. I, I think a dramatic shift on the education issue specifically. Uh, that was such a huge topic in Virginia. We also have a, a dramatically different governor now um, in dramatically different positions on uh, the life issue, for example. Um, there uh, and also in the in the state house of delegates control things like that. So those types of policies, I think, will be impacted at the, the more local level, school board level. I think we'll see some of these, uh, you know, critical race theory was a huge issue. And some of these, I think we'll see more progress in uh, getting some of those addressed with some of these new school board members that are coming in uh, across the country. And Brent, thank you for that overview, because that really is the most important part of all of these political election conversations that we have is having everybody aware of the fact that those are connected to actual ideas, actual policies that connect real people's lives. We thank you for your efforts all year long. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Joseph. Good to be with you. And coming up, we're going to talk a bit more about how these policies are being affected at the federal and state level. We'll talk with Kena Gonzalez, FRC's Director of Public Policy, when we come back right after the break. God is the author of life and has created man in his image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know where your state stands on protecting unborn babies. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro-life maps. Hi, my name is Hannah. I'm serving as an intern here at Family Research Council, and it's been a life-changing experience. Interns join FRC's team of experts as they embark upon a mission of advancing faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture from a biblical worldview. The FRC internship is a 12- to 15-week program designed to educate university students who are passionate about public service and who believe that a biblical worldview is fundamental to the reformation of government and culture. Interns receive the opportunity to work alongside and be personally and professionally developed by FRC's team of experts. This paid internship offers free housing in the heart of D.C., which allows students to be fully immersed in the fast-paced political climate and to build a community with other faithful conservatives in the nation's capital. For more information and to apply, visit frc.org internships. That's frc.org internships. Stay informed with Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. 
With the Stand Firm app, you will have all our content available at your fingertips and will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. You will have access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Search Stand Firm on your mobile device to download FRC's Stand Firm app. We often hear that religious liberty is something we must protect, but what is it? Simply put, it is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. So, why should people care about protecting religious liberty, both domestically and internationally? At Family Research Council, we believe that fighting for religious liberty is essential because it is an inherent human right that all governments have a responsibility to protect. Unfortunately, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a terrible reality around the world, yet so often the media turns a blind eye while attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. As Christians, we look to Scripture as our authority, and in it we have a clear calling from God to pray and care for the persecuted. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. Learn more about what you can do to help the persecuted by accessing Family Research Council's latest resources on religious liberty at frc.org slash religious liberty. Welcome back, friends, to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today. The website is TonyPerkins.com, where your contribution to FRC will be doubled between now and December 31st. Thank you so much for your support. Today on the program, we are highlighting the way that we, you, the audience, and we, the FRC organization, have partnered together to make a difference in Washington, D.C., in state capitals around the country, as well as in the culture. And no FRC end-of-the-year look-back is complete without our colleagues in the Policy and Government Affairs Department. The landscape has been challenging this year in Washington, D.C. The White House, Senate, and the House are led by people who do not share our values or view of the world. But that doesn't mean there isn't anything to do And that doesn't mean we haven't been able to make an impact. Here to highlight FRC's successes this year on Capitol Hill and state capitals across the country is Kena Gonzalez. He's FRC's Senior Director of Government Affairs. Kena, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Joseph. Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas to you. It's good to see you. In the last segment, we had a conversation with Brett Kylan, who really works on elections. You kind of deal with the impact of elections. You have to you have to adjust to the whims and to the the wins, I should say, of electoral results. How does going from the Trump administration to the Biden administration affect what you do? Well, you're absolutely right, and I enjoyed uh, watching and listening to that segment because Brent's work and FRC Action's work is so important for laying the groundwork for what we can do at FRC when we're trying to influence the Hill and the administration. Obviously, in the last administration, we had tremendous access, and for two years, we had uh, Republican control of the Hill and saw some really great advancements on life and religious liberty uh, during that time. And even during the rest of the Trump presidency. So the Biden administration and the unified control of Congress right now, as of this year and presumably next, uh, by Democrats, certainly has shifted our strategy. We're more on defense, but that doesn't mean we don't get to go on offense. 
And I would say that especially when the House and the Senate are so closely divided, just a handful of votes in the House divide Republicans and Democrats, and only one vote in the Senate really controls which way this ship is going to steer, there is tremendous opportunity for FRC and our supporters to have a tremendous impact on the Hill. And we've seen that. We've seen both uh, on offense and defense in the last year. We've, we've seen a lot of wins, actually. Now, Kena, you say presumably the Democrats will have control of the Hill next year as well. Is that an indication that you think maybe Senator Manchin is going to jump ship? Senator Manchin is a moderate, old-school Democrat, and he comes from a state that has been turning redder and redder on the policy issues, but not all of them. It would be a surprise to a lot of us in Washington if he jumped ship and went to the Republicans. He's really in the catbird seat right now. He's in the majority either way. That's fair. He has become... uh perhaps the most important, most powerful person in Washington, D.C. Over the last month, it certainly seems that way. Now, with respect to your work generally, there are lots of people who talk about politics. There are also a lot of people who try to influence what happens on Capitol Hill. What do you think makes the difference between those who are merely talking about Washington, D.C. and those who are actually influencing what happens? Yeah, Joseph, the really key difference is action and timely action. And a lot of what we do in the uh, government affairs team is to alert our supporters who sign up at frcaction.org for our alerts of when is a great time to weigh in on this issue or that issue. You know, this fall, this summer and fall, at any given time, we might have had four or five irons in the fire, major bills moving in Congress concurrently that we were lobbying on. And it was so important to time when people would speak up on this issue or that issue. Maybe it was on life. Maybe it was preserving the Hyde Amendment, which uh, uh, protects taxpayers from having to fund abortions, as you know. That has to be re-upped every year in multiple sections of law so that different funding streams through HHS and other departments of the government are uh, protecting taxpayers uh, on the life issue. Uh, There have been other things that have been going on brewing underneath the Equality Act, which would really rewrite almost the totality of federal statute if it were passed and enacted into law under this president uh, to to enshrine false uh, categories of sexual orientation and gender identity, these things that get at people's sexual desires and behaviors and elevate them to core identities and civil rights throughout uh, our laws. Uh, We have been working very hard on that. And there are moments when people can weigh in and tell their congressmen and or their senators uh, how they feel about these issues. And that's when we send alerts. And we've just been so grateful as people have weighed in again and again. The last thing I will say is that there are members of Congress uh, uh, who are sort of speak a lot. They make a lot of speeches. And there is uh, a need for bold leadership in Congress. Don't get me wrong. Um, But it's not enough to just make speeches. There are also the need for uh, folks who will put pen to paper and really write good policy. And at FRC, I'm proud to say that our team works every day with the folks on the Hill, the members and the staff who are doing tremendous work on that front. Kena, when you look back on the first year of the Biden administration, how has the reality of what has developed met or not met the expectations you had when this year began? Oh, goodness. 
I would say the thing that marks the first year of the Biden administration uh, as it began was overreach. And as we close out this first year of the Biden administration, I think panic is beginning to set in. Biden and liberal, uh, now they call themselves progressives, the progressive caucus, particularly in the House, but some in the Senate, really set a very hard line of everything that they wanted to get done. Again, rewriting our election laws to federalize them, uh, rewriting how our appropriations work so that they could uh, further engineer the American family, engineering the uh, American military, as you talked about with Mary Beth uh, yesterday, uh, to, uh, to uh, force women into the draft. I mean, they came in with a, with a laundry list of things to accomplish in the first two years. And as we finish out the year, we're seeing some uh, remarkable failures on that front. Uh, the Build Back Better, this big trillions and trillions of dollar program, which would punch a huge hole, not only in the budget, uh, but also in the deficit uh, in the out years, uh, is falling apart. It's, it's falling apart for this year. And Chuck Schumer is promising to bring that up next year. But there's really no path forward for that, except perhaps passing it piecemeal. And I think Democrats have been uh, slow to pick up on the fact that big uh, policy proposals like the Build Back Better program or the Build Back Busted program, uh, which would blow our budget, or the Equality Act are really going to have to be passed, if at all, very piecemeal. They've been very disappointed with that. And so that's given us a lot of opportunity, again, to go on defense and to uh, work with our allies on the Hill to outmaneuver them in many, many cases. Kana, do you see the frustration of the Biden agenda in Congress as evidence of the fact that the American people really don't want what they are selling and that they took this this victory over Trump, which, in my judgment, had more to do with personality than with policy. But the, the Democrats took that as an endorsement of all their policy proposals. Do you think the fact that they can't get it through a democratically controlled Senate is evidence that the public really isn't interested in that? I think that's exactly right. Uh, they misread the election entirely. And that's why you have like a 10 or 12 or 15 point swing in Virginia uh, uh, between uh, Biden and uh, uh, Governor Yunkin, the Republican who was just elected there this fall. Uh, that's, that's the way to read it. And I think that's why Senator Manchin is reading the tea leaves. He's from West Virginia, which has been trending more and more red, quote unquote, right. over the years. And he knows that to get reelected, he has to listen to the voice of the people I heard yesterday that the Build Back Better uh, uh, bill, this huge trillions and trillions of dollars bill that the Biden administration has really made the capstone at the end of this year and that has finally fallen apart, that something like 75 percent of West Virginians oppose it. Uh, it's, it's remarkable how the Democrats have, in my view, simply misread their public. To that point... Do you think they are going to adjust in 2022? You and I seem to agree that they misread what the public really meant in the 2020 election. Do you think that the, the results of 2021 politically and electorally is going to cause them to reconsider their legislative agenda? I think that would be the smart move, Joseph, but I think they've painted themselves into the corner, into a corner. The, the base is simply not going to put up with it. The liberal base that turns out in primaries and is really the energy behind their campaigns won't allow it. And the very, very large 100-plus uh, member uh, 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 progressive caucus in the House simply won't abide by it. There are moderates in the House who tried to cut deals before, before it was Manchin and Cinema. 
uh, in the Senate, there were folks in the House on the Democrat side who were trying to cut deals and sort of soften things and maybe work around the edges and be a little more incremental. And I think what we see now more and more in the rhetoric that is coming from the Hill is sort of the onset of panic. Uh, 2022 will be an election year. And if it's anything like the election in Virginia nationally, it's not going to be a good year for Democrats. Typically, the mid-year the, uh, the mid -year elections that come in the off year when the, when the president is not on the ticket do not go well for the party who has the White House, if they have the majority of the House, they often lose that. And as I said, there's a one-vote spread in the Senate and just five or six votes in the House. Kena, there's another issue that is under the surface, rarely gets a lot of attention, but has a huge impact on not only elections, but the policies that result from that. It's redistricting. Every 10 years, the boundaries of congressional districts are redrawn Right now, there's litigation all over the country about these lines on these maps. Why does this matter so much? Yes, redistricting is a once-a-decade uh, opportunity for people to remember the Constitution, the need for a census, and the reapportionment of the House of Representatives. Every state gets two senators, no matter how large or how small. But the House districts are drawn according to where the population lives and where they have moved in the last 10 years since the last redistricting. And so in a lot of states, uh, typically red states, conservative states, I think of Florida, I think of Texas, have gained seats because people have left liberal bastions like California, which lost a seat, and others in the Northeast to live under local laws and local tax uh, regimes that are more friendly to business and to workers. Um, and so we're seeing this reflected again uh, for the second time in my 20 years in, in, in Washington, Congress's uh, congressional districts are being redistricted. And for the second time in a majority of states where there is partisan control, that is the state legislature and or the governor exerts some influence on that process. It's different from state to state. Uh, but in the majority of cases where there are elected officials running that process, it is Republicans drawing those districts. Why is that important? That's not important because FRC is Republican. That's important because the issues that we care about, life, marriage and family, religious liberty, are by and large carried in uh, state and federal uh, offices by conservatives who are often Republicans. And so when those Republicans redistrict their states and present district maps, either for approval, sometimes by a judge or by other means, uh, those districts decide where where those population centers will be, who will represent whom. Often, Joseph, as you know, uh, how the district is drawn almost determines which party is going to win that district. In the vast majority of cases uh, of the House of Representatives, those seats are not really competitive between the two parties. And so drawing the districts uh, is very, very important to our policy issues. And I'll just say in closing on this that uh, during the Obama years, we saw Republicans make uh, huge uh, gains in state capitals across the country. Legislatures and governorships swung from being about evenly divided, maybe favoring Democrats more than Republicans, to completely swinging the other way. That continued, that trend line continued under Trump and continues today under Biden. And so in most cases, those districts are being drawn by Republicans who are in many, if not most cases, pro-life, pro-religious liberty. And that is, I think, why 
uh, Democrats who have this two-year window uh, to be in total control of the federal government are looking for opportunities to federalize our elections because when they leave it to the states, as the Constitution prescribes, they don't like what they see. People get elected on policies that they don't support. Now, Kena, we are we got a little less than two minutes here. Uh, this we could talk all day, but I want you to look back on the last year. What are you most proud of that your team has done when you look at what's happened at the state, the federal level? Yes, Joseph, you've had many times on this program uh, the team, Connor Semmelsberger and Mary Beth Waddell, they do outstanding work lobbying the Hill. This year alone, I was just making a list before talking to you of all that we've gotten done, some of which has been a surprise. Uh, the Hyde Amendment, Hyde protections on, uh, that I described earlier, which protect taxpayers from funding uh, abortion directly and indirectly. Uh, we've also been able to force with our friends on the Hill some very good high contrast votes that really show where different members of Congress are. And I encourage people to go to frcaction.org slash scorecard or look for a scorecard link and you will see uh, where your members have been voting. And if you're getting our alerts, we'll be letting you know that as well. We've made some good progress, as I said, not just pushing back the Build Back Better program, the, spend, the tax and spend bill, but also pushing back on the Equality Act, which has been filed and is a real bill that really could pass unless there are people and organizations like FRC on the Hill day in and day out making the case as to why this is not better. I would just add that next year we think we will see the Equality Act. We also think we'll see the Equality Act light which is called fairness for all. It's really fairness for no one, but it does the same thing. So we've got a busy year ahead of us, Joseph. Well, Kena, I, I, I want to thank you for the work that you've done. And you, you talked about Connor and Mary Beth and all of the people who labor long into the hour, early in the morning on Capitol Hill on behalf of our issues. Thank you so much and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Joseph. And friends, I hope you feel good about it because you've been part of it too. Remember, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time. Merry Christmas. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.